We, the organised Jewish workers of England, taking into consideration the anti-alien resolution and the uncomplimentary remarks of certain delegates about the Jewish workers specially, issue this leaflet, wherewith we hope to convince our English fellow workers of the untruthfulness, unreasonableness and want of logic contained in the cry against the foreign worker in general and the Jewish worker in particular. It is and always has been the policy of the ruling classes to attribute the sufferings and miseries of the masses which are natural consequences of class rule and class exploitation to all sorts of causes except the real ones. When this ill-founded sentiment has been officially expressed by the organised working men of England, then we believe that it is time to lift our voices and argue the matter out. So began A Voice from the Aliens, a pamphlet in response to the anti-alien resolution of the Cardiff Trade Union Congress, published in 1895 by a variety of Jewish workers' organisations. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about labour history and trade union issues. This is episode three. Welcome to Labour Days. Uh, As mentioned in the intro, we're a podcast about uh, trade union issues and labour history. This is episode three. And today we're going to be talking about migrant worker struggles and debates within the labour movement, uh, both historical and contemporary, uh, about immigration. I'm Daniel, joined by Ed and Ellie, with producer Liam behind the desk. Coming up later, we've got an interview with Sujata Arora, the chair of the Grunwick 40 Committee, with whom we'll be talking about the Grunwick Workers' Strike of 1977. And later on, we'll also be speaking to Henry Lopez from the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, the IWGB, Uh, about some of his members' struggles and how they're affected by issues of immigration. Uh, Ellie's going to be telling us a little bit about the Imperial Typewriters' strike and uh, I'll be talking about some Jews. Uh, Before any of that though, a quick disclaimer. Um, Some of the issues we'll be discussing today have been sources of significant contention in the labour movement historically and continue to be so today, particularly acutely since the EU referendum uh, and Brexit. Issues of immigration loom quite large in the contemporary political landscape including in the general election that's currently being fought so we thought this was a good time to talk about some of these issues. Uh, We don't intend this podcast however to be an even-handed or objective presentation uh, of the debates. All of us involved in Labour Days are coming from a pretty partisan perspective. Uh, We're very much pro-free movement, pro-open borders and we reject the argument uh, that attempts by some employers to use migrant labour to undercut local workers' conditions means that the trade union movement should support restrictions on immigration. Uh, We'll be reiterating that position as we go along and really only mentioning the opposite view in order to uh, attack and deride it. So if you're uh, you're looking for balance, uh, even-handedness and objectivity, um, I'm afraid you're not going to find it. There are plenty of other places you can get an alternative (laughs) view from. Before we talk to Sujata about Grunwick, we're going to hear from Ellie about the Imperial typewriter strike in Leicester, which in many ways portended a lot of the issues that will be central to the Grunwick strike a few years later so Ellie take it away so we're gonna as Daniel's mentioned we are gonna hear a little bit later about the Grunwick dispute um and I kind of thought knowing that that was coming up you kind of can't talk you can't not talk sorry about the the imperial typewriters dispute because they're very closely linked in a lot of ways the the similarities between them um are pretty huge But to start on quite a depressing note, unfortunately, um, this is a dispute, I think, that really shows the patchy, um, the sort, yeah, it really, um, it really shows the kind of patchy history that the Labour movement has towards migrant struggles. 
Um, but I think that's important and I think it's something that, um, that we have to talk about. Um, so only a few years before the Grunwick strike in 1974, I believe, over 500 workers, mostly of East African Asian descent, um, went out on an unofficial strike at the Imperial Typewriter Factory in Leicester. Um, and to give you a bit of kind of historical context of the city at the time, Leicester um, had a huge national front presence, probably one of the biggest, uh, probably one of the biggest in the country. And um, so this strike was, it wasn't anything to be scoffed at. It lasted for, for over three months. Um, as I say, there was, there was over 500 workers came out. And while on the surface, this was a strike about kind of pay, and specifically, it was a strike about the fact that um, the migrant workers were not being paid as much as the white workers and that, um, and that they were not getting the bonuses that they were actually entitled to. And also, um, there was no room for promotion for Asian workers. It was, also, um, a, it was also a dispute about human dignity as... as with the grunt uh, as with the grunt dispute and it was a it was a dispute about the dignity of work um which i think is something something really important um so some of the dispute was about the fact that asian workers were disciplined um a lot more uh, harshly than any of the white workers were um and so, for instance, one worker came out as saying the discrimination is quite peculiar because it's hard to nail. Um, it's the kind of racism that you can feel, but you can't overtly see. And that's the kind of racism that we face every day in Imperial. Um, so there was a very obvious tone to this dispute that was one that was about racism. It was one that was about equality. It wasn't purely a kind of uh, dispute about terms and, and conditions and money. Although I'm not really 100% sure if if there are ever disputes that are purely about the things mm. they say they are about. <laughs> um, yeah, and so... Um, yeah, and it's shameful, but it's true. Um, the dis this dispute was actively either slandered or largely ignored by the trade unions and the wider left. So, for instance, um, the trade union uh, the trade union that was uh, specifically involved in this, which was the TGWU, which was the Transport and General Workers Union, for instance, was saying things like um, this strike's being funded by Chinese communists. Uh, that, yeah, that, that, that Chinese communist arms are... A twist in workers' hands, or whatever the phrase is. Classic, classic <laughs> Chinese Communist Party <laughs> funding a strike in the East Midlands. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and much of the left kind of basically, um, basically ignored it. So even the socialist left would report on it and they would talk about it, but they were kind of, I think, largely missing from from a lot of the actual acts of solidarity and also, um, you know, you, you wouldn't find them on the picket lines and things like that. Apart from, and what I should say, in all fairness, this dispute was used as a way for the National Front, it was used by the National Front as a way for them to sort of organise more in the area and turn white workers against uh, their Asian brothers and sisters. And now, to be fair to the socialist left, when that happened, they did come out and they did sort of... Uh, there was a protest um, by the National Fronts and a lot of the socialist parties and people like that, they came out to counter-protest. But sort of before... 
as far as I can understand it, before the kickoff with the national fronts, they were they were pretty conspicuously missing from the whole dispute. Um, and the trade unions were actually just i mean they were awful so the representative of the the tgwu for imperial was uh george bromley um and who in a typical bureaucratic fashion completely objected to the strike on the grounds that it was unofficial um and he also um he also didn't like the demands being made so bromley criticized the asian strikers for their apparent disregard for the proper disputes procedure um, and even stated um, that striker that, that, that the strikers had to learn from our way of life, um, which I, is just gross. <laughs> uh, I'm not joking. It, it, that that's a direct quote and is is incredibly gross. Um, if you come to Britain, you have to learn our incredibly timid, <laughs> bureaucratized way of doing trade unionism. If you're ever going to fit into this country. Um, but it is worth pointing out that the strike got it. It got solidarity and it got support from the Black and Asian community, especially kind of um, more political areas of the of the Black and Asian community. Now, the, this story doesn't have a happy ending. The strike was crushed and the workers were sacked. Um, and to me, I think this is a terribly sad and shameful story that marks a real low point in both our kind of industrial history and our and our race relations history. Um, and I do think it could have had a completely different outcome if the trade union movement, uh, the Labour Party and so on and so forth, the, and, you know, the wider socialist left had really thrown their weight behind it. Um, and really acted in solidarity with these workers. And I think something we're going to talk about more as as the episode goes on is we're going to talk about how none of the kind of fights that are going on today or even the debates that are going on today are original. And unfortunately, we keep making the same mistakes. So I think to start on a depressing note is, is probably... It's, yeah, whole <laughs> <laughs> it's probably good because, uh, you know, we can talk about how we can kind of move on and stop having the same debates over and over again. I'll tell you what, though, there's something that um, Holly Smith, our resident researcher, dug out a fantastic quote from one of the women who was involved in Imperial typewriters, uh, despite the fact that, as you as you said, the, the dispute was unsuccessful. Um, this I love this quote. It's fantastic. Um the first day I got back to work, my foreman asked me what I had gained. He was making fun of me, I know. But I told him that I'd lost a lot of money, but had gained a lot of things. I told him I'd learn how to fight against him for a start. I told him he couldn't push me around anymore. In the past, when I used to get less money in my wage packet, I used to start crying. I told the foreman, next time I won't cry, I'll make you cry. So from Leicester to Brent, northwest London in 1977... Uh, we're very lucky to be joined by Sajata Aurora from the Grunwick 40 Committee that's been working throughout this year to uh, commemorate and memorialise uh, the Grunwick strike on its 40th anniversary. So just to kick off, um, maybe if you could give a, a sort of little potted history of, um, of Grunwick, and that's difficult because there's a lot in it, um, but maybe for someone who's not familiar with what, what the strike was about and what, what the issues were involved, give us some background. Okay, so the Gromwick strike um, started in 1976. It was a two-year strike, um, so lasted almost two years through to 1978. And it really started with 
a group of workers who were protesting mainly for dignity at work, um, for better pay, uh, better conditions, against enforced overtime. And what was remarkable about the strike is that most of the workers were Asian women. They were um, Gujarati women um, who'd come from Tanzania, Kenya and Uganda. And it was really not, it was not the first time that a group of workers like this had gone on strike, but it was the first time that the organised labour movement had given any level of support to a dispute led by workers like this. And it really changed the way that trade unions thought about women workers and immigrant workers. And it really changed the perception of who a trade unionist was and the kind of issues that they could relate to. Um, so it was a it was a, f- a film processing factory. Is that is that right? In the... It was it was a it was a film processing factory in um, northwest London, um, just next to Dollis Hill Tube Station. Um, before the days of digital cameras and and so on, um, people used to have to put their camera camera reels in into these very brightly coloured envelopes that you'd find in in airports and chemists everywhere, and you'd send them off to this factory. And within a couple of days, they'd send you back your prints with, with a free film as well. Um, so in 1976, um, which was actually the... It was, as you probably remember, it was one of the hottest uh, summers on record. I do um, remember. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> of course I don't. Absolute scorcher. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the hottest summers on record. So demand was very high. Um, the pressure was very intense. Uh, for the workers working in that film processing unit within the factory. Um, There was no air conditioning, um, conditions were pretty intense in terms of uh, the demands that were made on them by the the factory management. Um, And it was actually one one incident of one worker, Jaya Ben Desai, who was asked to do overtime uh, late on a Friday evening um, which was the incident that really was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like. Um, she walked out. Um, her son, who also worked in the factory, followed her. And that kicked off a dispute, which ended up being one of the biggest mobilisations that the trade union movement had ever seen at that point. So it started as a, started as a, a wildcat, almost, of just people just walking off the job. The The... Workers there weren't weren't unionised. Um, the the factory had actually been on the radar of local trade unionists and, and activists for quite some time because um, the management were known as being very anti trade union and there'd been a previous strike back in nineteen seventy three where some of the delivery drivers uh, had joined the T and G um, and been sacked as a result and that. That strike didn't really go anywhere, and it was unsuccessful. Um, now, these workers who worked at, walked out on that Friday weren't unionised and weren't aware of um, what a union could really do for them. They'd walked out on that Friday evening. Um, by Monday morning, they'd decided they wanted to do something. 
and Sunil Desai, who was Jayaben Desai's son, went off to the local citizens' advice bureau and asked for for advice. Um, they told him to ring the TUC and to ring Brent Trades Council. The TUC uh, told him to join Apex, which was what they eventually did. Um, and Apex very quickly made the strike official. By Tuesday, um, it had become an official Apex-backed strike, and they gave strike pay, um, started leafleting and talking to all the workers. Um, and Brent Trades Council as well, who were, who were based just around the corner from the Grumwick factory, um, also gave support and started hosting meetings of the strike committee and so on. Um, there's obviously an awful lot to sort of unpick in the dispute in terms of the tactics and strategies the workers use, the development of the strike committee, its relationship to the local labour movement, tactics of mass picketing, the solidarity, so on and so on. Um, and uh, one one might almost uh, dedicate an entire museum exhibition to that, as, 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 <laughs> or, 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 a, or, a, or a library exhibition to that, as indeed as indeed you did. So um, uh, maybe a little bit later, you can talk about some of the commemorative activities. But for this episode of of, of our podcast, we we're looking at um, immigration and debates and struggles um, uh, in 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 labour movement history and in the contemporary labour movement around issues of immigration. So I think we'd kind of like to sort of zero in on that. And one thing I was really interested by in your kind of initial praise of the background is that you said Grunwick changed the perception of what a trade unionist was um, and what a trade unionist looked like. So could you expand on that a bit? So what, what was that conception before and, and, and how did it change? How was it changed as a result of the strike? There'd been... A number of disputes in the years preceding Gromwick um, involving black and Asian workers. Um, so right from the from the sixties onwards, there'd been strikes at places like uh, Wolfs in Southall, Mansfield Hosiery, Imperial typewriters. You know, endless strikes involving black and Asian workers that had really been at best ignored and at worst actively betrayed by the established trade union movement. So the trade unions were part of maintaining, at that point, a racist wage differential. Um, in other disputes, such as at Mansfield Hosiery, um, the workers had to fight for any kind of backing um, from the trade unions, and they, they, they won a very limited form of backing eventually um, and a lot of these disputes black and Asian workers were organising and they were mobilising um, and they were sometimes winning limited victories but they were often doing it in opposition to established trade unions Gromwick seemed to seemed to change all that and I think there's there's a lot of very interesting discussion about why the trade unions backed Gromwick when they hadn't backed previous disputes. And one one answer there might be because the workers at Gromwick weren't, weren't raising explicit complaints of racial discrimination within this dispute. Um, now, there is... Um, 
there is some argument to say that trade unions actively discouraged them from raising those complaints in order that they could build a broader base of support amidst white workers. Yeah, I mean, what's what, what's what's interesting about Grumwick and what we kind of found when we were when we were doing the research and, and putting the exhibition together is that there are there are all these different narratives coming out of it, and sometimes they those narratives overlap, but they also compete as well because um, for the established trade union movement who have been very you know, willing and, and quick to lord Grumwick and to, to celebrate it. Mm. Um, it's an example of where where they saw the light, where the, where they changed their thinking. Um, for for the for the left, it's an example of how the trade unions betrayed a working a work a worker's struggle because they were in hock to a right wing Labour government. Um, but for a lot of black and anti racist activists and also um, some of the feminist movement it was an example of how trade unions hijacked complaints around racism and sexism and turned it into a fight for union recognition and really subsumed some of those narratives around racial discrimination and uh, sexism that were going on in the workplace to the extent that they they barely featured within some of the some of the official literature of the strike. Mm-hmm. In terms of the kind of the debate and the discourse in the labour movement around issues of immigration, um, obviously this strike is taking place um, just under a decade after um, tens of thousands of dockers, arguably the best organised, most industrially militant section of the entire working class, had had marched in support of power light immigration policy. Um, so obviously the kind of political terrain within the working class and within the labour movement was, say the very least, like, uh, complicated. Um, did those debates kind of play out through or around the Grunwick strike um, in any way, those debates about, you know, are, are, are migrant, do, do, does immigration drive down wages? Are migrant workers here to steal our jobs? What should the attitude of, should, should trade unions be trying to keep these people out of the labour market or do we have to accept that, immigration is going to happen and try to organize you know all, all, all those kind of debates what can you say a bit about if and how they they played out in and around the strike yeah i mean yeah they played they played out very very much so because i think trade unions um um at that point were accepting that narrative um of um immigrants bringing down wages when we talk about um, black and Asian workers organising during some of these strikes uh, in the seventies, so at Imperial Typewriters and at Grumwick, um, we always use this shorthand of of describing them as migrant workers, um, and of course they were immigrants. But what's also important to remember is that they were were citizens. Um, what was interesting about the Grumwick strike was that during the course of the strike. Brent Trades Council organised a speaking tour um, and they sent out members of the strike committee to tour all around the country. So everywhere from, you know, from Scotland to, to Essex, they travelled right the way across the country. And they did meet resistance. They did meet resistance from people saying, 
we're not going to support a group of foreign workers. Mm. Um, but the fact that they went out and spoke to grassroots workers, they weren't reliant on trade union, official trade union communications, meant that they were going over the heads of the trade union, or in fact under the feet of the trade union <laughs> leaders rather than over their heads, um, and talking to them directly. And so when you have these debates around migrant workers bringing down wages and reducing conditions, actually enabled um, British workers to see that the opposite was the, tr- mm. was the truth, was that it was migrant workers that were fighting a fight that was going to benefit all workers. And that proved to be a really powerful message, I think, in terms of building support. Um, yeah, so the disputes in the early 70s that the late 60s, early 70s, that the unions were hostile towards. Did that come from this place of uh, we don't like migrant workers because they undercut our terms and conditions? Or was it from a place of racism and xenophobia? Or was it a combination of those two? I think think it was a combination of the two. I mean, it's difficult to kind of... um give a kind of breakdown of what proportion was was what. But, I mean, you have to also remember the context of, of the 70s. Um, and, I mean, particularly 1976, when the Grumwick strike started, you had the National Front gaining um, up to 20% of the vote in, in some local elections. Um, you had... Um, racist attacks just a few just a few weeks before the Grumwick strike strike began um, a young Sikh schoolboy was murdered down the road in Southall he was left lying on the on the side of a road in a pool of his own blood he was stabbed by racists um, so you had people like Eric Clapton coming out with sort of mm-hmm. racist rants and being very well received um, you know with his racist rants at some of his contexts so you had that kind of real culture of very acceptable and respectable racism um, at the same time kind of you know kind of this vicious combination of that with the dialogue of immigrant workers bringing down wages and remember at the time that the National Front were organising very heavily within workplaces and factories and so the two were really feeding off each other one of the things which is which is sort of really quite spectacular about um, Grunwick is that the mass pickets mobilised um, immense solidarity from um, all over the country. You know, busloads of miners coming down from Yorkshire, um, uh, car factory workers come, coming from Birmingham, um, and so on and so on. Um, now, th- those groups of workers were, particularly in the case of the Yorkshire miners, not exclusively, but pretty overwhelmingly white, um, and from uh, communities and backgrounds that you know a lot of a lot of kind of popular historiography might say were quite mired in some pretty backwards attitudes towards immigrants and and to non-white people, um, and yet here they are um, mobilising in their thousands to support this um, this strike of, of of black and Asian women migrant workers um so what do you think is going on there so is, is it just a sort of reflexive instinct of trade union solidarity and 
and, and, and they're not really kind of confronting those attitudes if, if, if indeed they hold them? Or does that represent a real thinking through and confrontation and break with um, some of those attitudes that you've described and that you know clearly did exist in the Labour movement at the time? I think um, Grunwick didn't happen out of, of nowhere. It, it happened at a time when, because of some of those earlier disputes, there was there was more and more pressure on the labour movement, on, on the trade union establishment, to start looking at issues of both race and gender. So it, it would be wrong to say that kind of it was it it just kind of it dropped from the sky Mm. um so it was it was part of a kind of uh rethinking um whether it was whether it represented something really fundamental or not is another question i think because because what we had in the in in the late 70s with the with the callaghan government was this idea of the social contract and this idea of of uh, this corporatist ideal, where the government would would get the unions and business to all sit around a table, um, and to you know sort the mm. problems out with beer and sandwiches. We'll give the unions everything they want as long as they promise not to actually ask for anything. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. So, I think there was this desire to well, I think. What had been happening was that they'd been looking at these struggles that Asian workers had been been mounting. And because those struggles weren't supported, the earlier ones, by the trade unions, um, they were were quite worried about them. They were unofficial, by definition, um, and they were very, very militant. And it was those groups of workers who were actually organising some of the most radical and militant struggles of the time and I think the trade union leaderships were actually quite worried that this militancy was going to blow a hole in the in the social contract and so there was this this there was this simultaneous desire to appease people who were saying look you have to start dealing with issues of migrant workers and accommodate issues around race and gender but at the same time, they saw an advantage in bringing those mm. people into the trade union fold and put a lid on it, yeah. and and encompassing them, um, so that they could keep this relationship going with with business and um, satisfy the demands of what what the government was was wanting in terms of the social contract. So how was that pressure from the hierarchy of the labour movement brought to bear on the Grummy? strikers and and how did that impact what happened with the dispute well you can see there's there's some really interesting documents actually if you you look back um into the national archive documents about how worried um both the home secretary and the prime minister were about the militancy of the strike there are there are all sorts of papers going backwards and forwards um memos and so on from from the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary saying, please keep me informed what's going to happen at this mass picket. Is there going to be any trouble? How many police have we got primed to go in? Um, and you can you can see the level of worry there is right at the very at the very top 
Um, and and the, and there was pressure to bear um, brought brought to bear upon um, both the leadership of Apex Union and upon the strike committee. There's one uh, very well known incident where one of them there was a there was a mass picket. There were thousands and thousands of people um, turning up outside the factory on on one day, and that the purpose of these mass pickets was to stop the busloads of strike breakers coming into into the factory. Um, but the strike committee were effectively blackmailed um, by the leadership of Apex to divert the pickets away to a march into a local park and away from the factory. So there was this kind of constant pressure being applied to um, dampen down some of the militancy. Um, one of the reasons they, they were so worried about it was because the, the strike was actually making national news um, every single evening. And it was very militant. The police were extremely violent on these picket lines. Of course, you know, when there's one incident of a police officer getting hurt, it's that incident that, that makes the news. Um, but it meant that the government were becoming more and more embarrassed by this whole episode because it was this portrayal of um, the country's out of control. The Labour government can't control the workers. Um, so, yeah, there was more and more pressure being applied in, in very concrete ways um, to, the, to the leadership of both Apex and to the Strike Committee um, to just quieten the whole thing down, I think. And is that what happened then? Essentially, yeah. Um, the trade unions became more and more worried. They got diverted into procedural battles. Um, postal unions uh, voted to actually boycott Grumwick's mail. Now, Grumwick as a company was incredibly dependent on the post for business. It was essentially a mail order company. It's as if you said Amazon can't have any packaging, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and they would have gone bust within, even, even the, the owner of the factory said the company would go into liquidation within a matter of weeks if, if, if they couldn't have a mail service. So when the postal workers voted to, to boycott mail, this caused a huge, huge fuss. And second reaction at that time was legal. But the right wing got involved in the form of the National Association for Freedom, who were forerunners of the Freedom Association, who also had their representatives in Parliament, um, John Gorst, MP, Keith Joseph, MP, and a certain Margaret Thatcher MP, <laughs> um, who were their supporters in Parliament and got together. And they took the postal unions to court under um, the law that said you cannot interfere with Her Majesty's Mail. So although second reaction was actually legal, they managed to, 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 to stop it that way. Um, and there was a parliamentary de uh, debate. It was the first time that Parliament was recalled in peacetime on a Friday, you know, since 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 Second World War. Um, that's just an indication of the the kind of worry that that this was causing. Um, so the postal union capitulated. They didn't fight the legal case. Um, they said, "Well, we'll wait for the outcome of of an ACAS report." 
will get Scarman to institute a court of inquiry and decide whether these workers um, claims uh, whether these workers should be allowed to join a union, whether they want to join a union, and they diverted all that militancy into what was essentially a bureaucratic and a legalistic struggle, um, and it was that diversion, I think, that really dampened down all of that kind of militancy. Um, the strikers were essentially blackmailed into accepting those those kind of um, legalistic solutions. And when they failed, as eventually we knew they would, um, there was really no, no impetus or no desire or no... There was no um, no will, no will, yeah, no 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 energy to get back on the picket lines mm. and, and and build something, you know, approaching kind of mass picketing again. Hardly surprising if you've been at it for two years and yeah. then, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've actually got two questions. Um, so one of the things I noticed with the imperial typewriter stuff when I when I was reading on that is. Um, some of the demands became centred around actually we as migrant workers have to have our own representation and I think part of that was to do with how awful the unions were being at the time um, and it was I think a lot less washy than you get sometimes these days with you can get ideas of like if you fill enough committees with enough people that tick enough boxes then somehow mm. you're doing the right thing whereas this was very much a concrete like we need migrant workers because only migrant workers can represent the interests of migrant workers. Is that ever something that kind of came up um, around the, the Brunswick stuff? Um, and also, when you're talking about the, the kind of the, the more legalistic and bureaucratic stuff failing, um, can you, what do you think that, what do you think the legacy of that has been on the, on the wider labour movement since? on the wider trade union movement since. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually, the, 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 when you're talking about migrant workers organising, because all, all through that period of, of the early 70s, um, because of what was essentially the betrayal of the, the trade union movement, there were quite serious debates going on about forming separate black trade unions um, and I think again that fed into um, the fear that the trade unions had around kind of you know containing this this militancy um, and there was very much a kind of um, growing kind of acknowledgement amongst what was what was quite a strong kind of black left movement at the time um, that um, people were going to fight for labour rights in a way that was not necessarily the same as the way that white workers or the established trade union movement was going was gonna to fight for it. Migrant workers had a different trajectory, they had an experience of colonialism and they had different entry points um, into labour movements than... Than, than white workers did. Um, and 
it's yeah, it's interesting. It does kind of come on to the point about the legacy because it was it was after Grumwick really that you got these um, the pressure really for more black representation within unions, um, and it was kind of around the time of the kind of early eighties that you started to see the pressure around. Um, uh, Labour Party black sections, for example, um, you know, equality committees within trade unions. Um, and those things were, yeah, partly partly some of the legacy of what had happened at Grumwick, whether those things were necessarily what Grumwick had been, people at Grumwick had, had wanted as an outcome and how successful or effective they've been is, is obviously, you know, up for dis- d- debate and discussion, but that was certainly it was certainly one of the impacts. Yeah. Okay, so maybe just to conclude, um, do you want to say a bit, Sajata, about the anniversary events and and kind of commemorative celebrations that have been going on, and let anyone listening know what they can do if they want to contribute to kind of supporting the the, the kind of ongoing commemoration of the dispute. Um, well. Last year we launched Grumwick 40 um, as a group of local residents based in, in Wilsdon, uh, trade unionists, uh, local community activists, um, to really commemorate and learn some of the lessons uh, from the Grumwick strike. And uh, to date we've held uh, a very well received exhibition at Wilsdon Library um, which tells the story of the strike. Um, and has really reached a whole new generation of people. Um, when we when we initially conceived of the exhibition, we wondered, and, and the, the commemoration activities generally, we wondered if it was if it was going to be just a trip down memory lane for a lot of trade unionists who had been there at the time. Um, but what we found is the story has really, really resonated with people, um, obviously the, the people who were there at the time, also local residents who wanted to know a little bit about this event in their, in their local area that they may have heard the word of but not really known much about the history. But also, and I think probably most importantly, a whole generation of younger, younger activists um, who didn't know the story had not had not heard of it, and have really been quite inspired by what they've seen and what they've heard. And one of the one of the really important things that we've we wanted to do was to bring out some of the relevance um, to organising today. So while we were in the middle of putting this exhibition together, we obviously had the. The, the EU referendum and the and the Brexit vote, which really highlighted the issues of migrant workers and put this whole debate back at right at the very top of of the news agenda, and I think that's been one of the reasons that um, the Grumwick strike has resonated. That whole story has had so much impact today. Um, and when we look at some of the organising going on um, amongst campaigners and amongst some of the some of the trade unionists today who are fighting, for example, against outsourcing or for for living wage, we're able to look at Grumwick and say um, that migrant workers are not the reason that 
your jobs are going or that you're on late or that your wages are decreasing it's actually migrant because of migrant workers that you're on a living wage mm. a lot of the time and that migrant workers have always been since they've been in this country been at the forefront of organizing for better rights and better conditions so that lesson to draw from that has has really had quite a big a big impact and really inspired a you know a whole layer of new new activists and new new organizers um obviously we've had the exhibition uh, at Wilsdon Library which is which is now finished but as more of a, a permanent um, or at least semi-permanent uh, memorial we're going to be installing a, a mural in Wilsdon Green later this year um, so that will hopefully be a very public and colourful and bright reminder of um, trade union solidarity workers unity and I think the power of what we can achieve when we do come together thanks very much it's a great note to end it on the Grunwick 40 committee has a Facebook page and a Twitter account which we can link to when we um, put this up um, so thanks very much Sajata for, for being with us that was that was really fantastic thanks to Sajata for joining us um, so we're going to be going back in time somewhat now from 1977 to talk about Eleanor Marx and the Jews. Uh, sounds like uh, the name of a, of a band yeah. <laughs> um, whose music I would definitely buy. Uh, sort of a, a, like a soul band, a soul tribute band. Yeah, Eleanor, Eleanor Marx and the Jews, yeah. Um, Huey Lewis and the News, Eleanor Marx and the Jews. Perfect. Okay, so uh, immigration controls as we understand them are really quite a modern phenomenon and only date back to 1905. Uh, the first immigration control in the modern sense was the 1905 Aliens Act, principally designed to restrict the immigration of Jews uh, fleeing both poverty and anti-Semitic persecution at the hands of the Tsarist Empire. Uh, its introduction was preceded by a growing clamour for restrictions on immigration, uh, much of it explicitly anti-Semitic in character, and the issue kind of split the labour movement at the time. Across Britain in 1892, more than 40 uh, labour movement bodies adopted resolutions calling explicitly for restrictions on immigration in general and Jewish immigration specifically. So trades councils in uh, London, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Cardiff and elsewhere were among those advocating immigration controls. The resolution passed, for example, by Manchester Trades Council uh, in 1892 was shamelessly reactionary. It said, It is time that the workers of this country rose up and protested with firmness against the continuation of this curse, uh, referring to Jewish immigration. And by the end of 1892, the TUC itself had passed policy in favour of immigration controls. Um, the, the argument of those trades councils at the time was, was, was pretty simple and hasn't really changed much since, which was um, more immigrants puts too much pressure on the labour market, uh, too much competition for jobs, too many people willing to work for lower wages than local workers, and therefore local workers will lose out. Uh, so on the other side of the debate, uh, many migrant workers' organisations and some uh, local workers' organisations mobilised to oppose the imposition of immigration controls. In September 1894 in Whitechapel, uh, East London, the Federated Jewish Tailors' Union held a conference which mobilised uh, thousands of delegates in response to uh, the TUC's uh, support for, uh, for immigration controls. 
Um, the conference statement said, the vast amount of poverty and misery which exists is in no way due to the influx of foreign workmen, but is the result of private ownership of the means of production. Um, and in 1895, a number of Jewish workers' organisations published a pamphlet entitled uh, A Voice from the Aliens, which you heard a quote from at the beginning of the episode, uh, which presented many of the anti-controls arguments. Um, it appealed to the uh, native, to use their term, British working class, to see migrant workers as brothers and sisters, uh, not as enemies. And it picks apart in some detail the argument that migrant workers uh, take jobs or that migrant labour drives down wages and conditions for domestic labour, um, an argument which the pamphlet points out is is often asserted but rarely substantiated. The uh, guy who wrote it, Joseph Finn, had actually been involved in a strike in Leeds where British workers had been consciously brought in to undercut Jewish tailors. So his experience was the direct opposite. Indeed. Um, Organisations such as the Alien Defence League uh, were formed. (laughs) So good. Yeah. (laughs) We have to bring back the word alien. Nobody uses that anymore. (laughs) Strongly agreed. Yeah, the (laughs) Aliens Defence League. Aliens Defence League. Um, One of the things we're increasingly finding, I think, as we do this podcast is that thing the names of things were cooler much in the better, past much yeah. better um the me- like the music hall war from our first episode like i'm definitely in favor of referring to protracted industrial disputes as as wars um and the aliens defense league is definitely a cool name for a, for a migrant <laughs> workers uh organization so groups like the alien defense league were formed and the most radical figures in the labor movement at the time such as eleanor marx who's an absolute hero who people should definitely go and read more about um, were supporters of that anti-controls uh, pro pro migrant worker argument, and Eleanor Marx in particular played a key role in winning uh, British workers' leaders like Ben Tillett, the Dockers' leader, to more solidar- solidaristic and, and anti-racist politics on on the issues of immigration. Um, but unfortunately, you know, history records that the anti-immigration controls wing of the Labour movement lost its fight, and the 1905 Aliens Act was introduced. Fast forward to 2017 and the British Labour movement is undergoing what I think is an eerily similar and similarly divisive debate with regards to whether the free movement arrangements Britain was signed up to as part of uh, being in the EU should end following Brexit. Uh, There are prominent voices in the Labour movement such as the Fire Brigades Union's Paul Embry and Gerard Coyne, uh, who is the recently defeated uh, kind of right-wing challenger for the leadership of Unite. Britain's biggest trade union, uh, they argue very explicitly for restrictions on immigration. Uh, So in an article for Huffington Post, Paul Embry writes, unprecedented levels of immigration into the UK have led to a substantial rise in cheap labour, causing downward pressure on wages, testing social cohesion like never before and increasing the strain on public services. Uh, He continues, yes, we must challenge rip-off bosses who pay low wages and a Tory government which does not invest sufficiently in public services. But it is utterly disingenuous to pretend that these problems are not made more acute by open-door immigration. Um, That's in his article from Huffington Post, and he also wrote a similar article on uh, the far-right website Westmonster. Um, Gerard Coyne went further, arguing... Is that that Aaron Banks' website? That's Aaron Banks' website. Yeah, yeah. Wow. (laughs) Why would you even write for them? Wow. Um, We'll we'll put up links to all these articles that we're quoting from in the episode description so people can read them for themselves, draw draw their own conclusions. Gerard Coyne went further, um, arguing on Twitter that um, the the very, quote, presence of what he uh, he termed a large number of foreign nationals was disadvantaging British workers. So for him, it's not even about migrant workers' economic activity, you know, that they're taking jobs or, or driving down wages, but, but merely that they're, they're here. Yeah, their mere presence. 
so Ed, you noticed that Len McCloskey, uh, Gerard Coyne's victorious opponent in the recent Unite General Secretary election, seemed to straddle both sides of the fence somewhat on this debate. Yeah, so McCluskey obviously is the General Secretary of a union which actually does a lot of work with migrant workers in various sectors, like the hotel workers, for example, um, the stuff that they're doing at Shirebrook with the Eastern European workers um, in the Sports Direct warehouse. Um, we're not talking about the same sort of arguments that we've just been talking about from people like Embry. We're talking about a different, a different sort of argument here. Um, but it's still based on the idea that... Um, so McCluskey said in a speech to the class think tank a few months ago, he said, workers have always done best when the labour supply is controlled and communities are stable. And that's interesting to me from someone who is the general secretary of a general union. And of course, he, kn he knows the history of his own union, obviously. He comes from the transport and general side of the union, which goes back to the dockers. And the, the dockers unions were formed explicitly by organising migrant labour themselves, mm. you know, back in the end of the 19th century. But here you've got the general secretary of a general union saying, oh, but we always do better when the labour supply is restricted, which is a much more like craft union position to have. I think also the idea that community stability should be something that we're straightforwardly in favour of sort of needs interrogating or unpacking a little bit. I mean, I think I know what McCluskey means by it in this context and I guess that's sort of fair enough but um, you know aren't we in favour actually of, of communities being sort of disrupted along class lines you know we, we, we're interested in a particular section of the community which is working class people in the community and we want to organise them against their employers including those within their own communities mm. so the, the, the idea that we sh we're straightforwardly mm. in favour of a kind of um, a sort of mainstream model of community stability or cohesion, I think, is something that re requires a bit of interrogation. And there's, a, there's a certain amount of um, sort of unspoken nostalgia there as well. Yeah, I for think, the past, you know. for the beautiful past. Yeah, indeed. You know, yeah. everyone, everyone Ho lived in the <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, everyone lived in the streets around the factory yeah. and, you I, know, and all that, you know. I mean, maybe this is kind of... Maybe this has something to do with, I don't know, growing up in London and... But I've all I always thought I always wanted to assume as well that kind of the idea of open borders was sort of received wisdom of the left and McCloskey very much sees himself on the left as well right because mm -hmm. um, just part of the received wisdom of the left but it always stuns me how actually much in the how much in the minority people who argue for open borders are I find that quite yeah I think even inside like I, I've noticed this in the Labour Party uh, like all over the Labour movement arguing for open borders is not part of the like the received wisdom of of the left yeah. which which stuns me to be honest I mean to, to give McCluskey his, his due in this in this same speech he does say we as socialists look forward to a world where people can travel and, and go wherever they want um, he does say we need to organise everyone in this country regardless of where they've come from to get on the same terms and conditions he mm -hmm. says all of that stuff but he but they, he also explicitly says uh open borders is utopian in the current situation and and talks about this restriction of the labor supply which is basically is, is unless you're talking about restricting people from moving down the m1 from from yorkshire to london <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking about restricting immigration aren't you? That's, but he taught rather than talking about controls on immigration like i suppose Embry is talking about McCluskey puts it in the in in the language of 
people need to have safeguards safeguards to guard against the uh, the the negative impacts of immigration. But again, as as Dan was saying earlier when he was talking about voice from the aliens, these negative impacts are like often spoke about, but not not so often proved. Yeah, you know I mean? and also what are these like magic safeguards? Uh, like so obviously for me. I think that the labour movement should be much, much, much more aggressive, much more fighting. It's your job to fight for mm. for our terms and conditions and our wages to not be driven down. Mm. A lot of people don't talk like that, and you can kind of you can kind of allude to these safeguards, but without actually making the argument that the labour movement needs to be more aggressive. Mm. Then what are these magic safeguards? That you're I mean, talking about? I mean, McCluskey talks about man- the sort of mandatory collective bargaining that's been talked about by the labour leadership. So it's a kind of I suppose it's kind of legislating for a situation where the undercutting of of wages can't happen or whatever, um, and he says that would that would end the attraction of employer uh, for, for employers to to bring people in from other countries. But the direct employment of people from other countries, like employers actually going over to other countries and and explicitly like bringing people here to do work, is a very like it it does happen in some instances, but it's a tiny tiny fraction of the total amount of migrant labor in britain so even even that that i think is talked about like it's a huge thing i mean i think in certain industries that does happen but sure. i think society as a whole it's very actually very rare yeah indeed i mean i think i think that's true that a, a significantly larger proportion of migrant labor is workers who've come to this country sort of voluntarily and you know you can, we can have a discussion about like how free was that choice really when you know the, the the problem is really that their own countries are so impoverished and they're sort of forced to come here and you know that, that the, the the picture of sort of global inequality is obviously part of this discussion as well but um, a, a much greater proportion of migrant labor in this in this country i think is is people who've who've, who've chosen to come here seeking to make a better life for themselves and rather than as you say people who've been directly recruited by a British employer in their country of origin on the explicit basis of, you know, come to Britain and uh, work, work for lower wages than I, than, than I would have to pay um, domestic workers. And I think the other, the other kind of problem with the kind of McCluskey schema that you're presenting, Ed, is that it's sort of, it's kind of statist and, yeah. you know, we're, we're in favour of um, state legislation to... Um, defend and extend and protect workers rights but in this model he's kind of appealing to the state to substitute for a militant and combative labor movement it's all the things he's talking about like mandatory collective bargaining the closed shop i'm in favor of all of those things but they'll only be won by a much higher level of labor movement combativity and organization and the idea that we would just kind of appeal to the state to give those things to us um seems to miss the point a little bit yeah, yeah, and you've had you've had this um, you've you've had this position from some parts of the labour, like Clive Lewis, for example, who talk, talks about the clothes the clothes shop for immigrant workers, or you know, uh, migrant workers who come in have to be members of a trade union, but it's fine for British workers not to be. So that those sort of those sort of arg- those sort of arguments are manifesting themselves in quite odd ways that don't really make much sense to me. Um, but something for people to think about, which we can't, we don't have time to like, like answer the question. But it, 
McCluskey's position makes me because it is a nuanced position. It's it's more complex than than certainly than Gerard Coyne's position. Mm. Um, do do people? Is it that people in the Labour movement are um, uh, really believe this stuff? Like you say, Ellie, like like open borders is a minority position, and and people just don't agree with it. Or is it that they're sort of they think that we have to capitulate to it? Because it'll somehow be a shortcut to making us more popular, mm. or and that, so that's what it made me think when yeah. I when I was reading that. To round off this month's episode, we've got an interview with Henry Lopez, migrant worker activist and president of the IWGB, who Daniel spoke to about their work amongst migrant workers and some of the debates we've been discussing today. In the interview, the strike mentioned is actually in the past, so some of the dates um, won't really match up. But the dispute is ongoing and it's definitely worth knowing about. Great. Okay, well, I mean, the, f- the first question um, I wanted to ask was and whether you could just tell us a bit about the struggles that the IWGB is involved in at the moment. I know you've got a strike coming up next week, I think. Yeah, yeah, we have. Uh, well, at the moment, uh, we have plenty going on in different... Uh, uh, and the cleaners at the University of London. Uh, we have, uh, yeah, well, in terms of uh, action, action, we have the, uh, at the moment the University of London, but we have also some uh, tribunals coming up uh, with the careers companies and also with the cleaning contractors as well. But, yeah, the one we have at the University of London is on the 25 and 26 which is next week, and uh, yeah. So, so um, what what workers are involved in in that strike? Is it security workers? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mostly, uh, all, all of them are securities and receptionists that works at the University of London. Uh, basically, in the contract of the University of London, which combines you know, the the uh, halls of residence and the main buildings and uh, house. So all of them are security guards, and uh, the majority of them are in our union. Basically, all of them. And what what are the issues uh, in the strike? What what are the workers demanding? Uh, well, on the, when the University of London gave the the London living wage, uh, when we won the London living wage at the University of London for uh, uh, all the outsourced workers, uh, the University of London. Uh, Gave the word that say that they they don't want to maintain the differentials among staff. So at the time the, when the, before we got the London living wage, like for example, the cleaners were on six fifty and the securities were already like on eight something. So they have like a, they they had a different they had a differential of two pounds, almost two pounds. So. Um, as university, as they, as the London living wage has is gone up every year according to inflation, uh, it has closed the gap with the securities and the cleaners, for example, and uh, now they are like twenty pence uh, differential now. So basically, University of London didn't keep the word, and the the, the, the securities are demanding that the university should uh, give the differentials to them as they promised uh, back in 2011, I guess it was. Uh-huh. Um, um, and also, they are, they, they, uh, they are uh, also on strike because uh, 
we have a new contractor which is called Cordant, uh, which is now in charge of the security, portrait and cleaning at the University of London. And uh, they are introducing uh, zero-hours contracts in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the workplace. And uh, obviously, we don't want uh, uh, the union uh, is fighting against these uh, kind of contracts. And we don't want the, 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 these kind of contracts at the University of London. And uh, security is also not happy about this as well. So we are asking them to, you know, to, to give them a proper contract of employment rather than to uh, give them two hours contracts. Okay, and there'll be picket lines at uh, the University of London if people want to go down to support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the idea. Yeah, we are uh, we are promoting on social media. We are trying to raise some money in order to get uh, all the securities out on the strike. So, uh, in terms of uh, you know. Uh, Get you some money to pay them to to get uh, to be on the picket line so sure. they lose money. But um, we have already a bunch of uh, of them that have said that they are up for coming out on strike, and we are trying to also like uh, work uh, with them in order to uh, convince them to come out on strike. I mean, to have a good a good uh, bunch of, uh, of security, if not the majority of them. And we are also, as I said, promoting social media, promoting within the branch, within the union. And hopefully we can, you know, if the University of London doesn't uh, uh, negotiate something before the day of the strike, we will be out uh, on strike on the picket line. So we hopefully we have support from everyone. Of course. Um, I'd like to ask a couple of more general questions now, if I may. So, as I mentioned to you, the um, episode of the podcast that we're putting together is about um, uh, immigration and issues around migrant worker struggles and the way in which trade unions and the labour movement have kind of engaged with questions of, of immigration in the past. Um, your union is obviously a union that organises quite large numbers of migrant workers um, quite a significant proportion of your membership is from a migrant background. So as a migrant worker yourself and a migrant workers organiser, how have you found that issues of um, immigration and immigration status affect um, the activity and the organising that you do in the workplace? Obviously, our union has benefited a lot in terms of 
having uh, migrant workers from the European Union, and then most of the impact that a big chunk of our members come from the you know have uh, come from the, the, the European Union. So it's going to be difficult, mm. I think, uh, later on to organise. Sure. And what 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 do you what do you make of the art? So there's an argument that has become almost a sort of common sense in politics now, including in some parts of the trade union movement, that immigration necessarily drives down wages and that migrant workers take jobs that a British worker could have. Um, you know, obviously our view is that, that, that that's quite a toxic argument. Um, how, 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 how have you... Uh, have you kind of encountered that argument at all in your work? Because obviously your union organises both migrant and non-migrant workers. So have you encountered any of those kinds of arguments and how have you dealt with them? Yeah, obviously you hear that even in the media, you know, not just in the workplace from people who might be against uh, migrants. But I guess it's more about racism than uh, uh, people taking their jobs because, in fact, uh, as I put example, that uh, someone who doesn't speak the language, someone who doesn't even know the, the, the country, doesn't even know how the country, the country uh, functions, uh, are able to take a job. Even that shows that there is opportunity for everyone in this country, basically. And I think that uh, in any case, uh, migrants have uh, helped a lot in terms of. Uh, uh, improve in terms and conditions for uh, many workers, uh, not just migrants, but even workers from this uh, country, native people from here, that, uh, um, as a result of uh, organizing and uh, getting involved in, in, uh, in trade unions, for example, and uh, getting, uh, um, you know, taking collective action. And in fact, uh, it's, it, it, some people from here, uh, from from here, uh, 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 have uh, been very uh, excited about what we have done as migrant workers, and they are like some of them are very taking this this example uh, as a model to follow as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's definitely right. I think it's. The thing is that so, so things are changing in this country, and the bad things are not going just for migrant workers. Things are going downhill even from uh, you know people from this country as well. So I think like a lot of people, uh, although there are some you know some people that might be against us, uh, against migrant workers, saying that uh, we take the jobs or uh, you know uh, other things. Uh, there are other people as well that are very supportive of what we're doing because uh, they think that. Uh, because uh, the, the way that things are going, like uh, everybody now needs to, like, you know, get, get engaged and they get organised in the workplace, no matter where you come from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think I think it's it's true, isn't it, that um, through the work that yourselves and some other organisations have been doing, in fact, some some of the most exciting and radical things that are happening in the labour movement in Britain have been led by migrant workers or unions that. Um, that that, that organise, uh, you know, among, amongst migrant workers. So I, I think that's I think that's definitely true. Listen, just just one more question, and then um, and then I'll let you go. So just to return, just to return to the the kind of general issue. Um, if you were if you were to have a have a message for or or, or to be able to kind of discuss with um, 
someone in the labor movement in this country, a worker or a trade union activist who has maybe kind of been taken in by, by that argument that migrant workers are their enemy and, and that you know, they should support restrictions on free movement and a reduction in immigration and, and that that somehow is going to lead to them having higher pay or, or a better job. What would, be your, what would be your message to that kind of person and, and, and what can be done, do you think, to try and break down some of those attitudes and build solidarity between migrant workers and, and uh, local workers? Yeah, I would say that uh, you know that, that, that's not that's not true. First of all, that uh, workers are taking jobs. I think the fact that uh, that uh, uh, not just the migrant workers are, are, are in low-paid jobs and uh, uh, is because uh, the workers are not united. Let me, as we have shown, like, for example, at the University of London, where uh, before um, workers were on lower wages and on and inferior terms and conditions, we, we showed that uh, when uh, we took, uh, you know, united action and collective action, it showed that uh, it helped everyone and it helped the people, not just the people that down, but it helped people above upstairs, I mean, as well because they also benefited from what we did as well. So I think it's not about uh, being a migrant, or it's about not being united in a workplace, because when you are united in a workplace, it helps everyone. It doesn't help only the, the, the people who are uh, you know, at the bottom. It helps everyone. So I guess I would say that um, uh, the, the, the most important thing is to be united in the workplace and to be you know, to be able to take uh, collective action. And if you, there is obviously a, a union, they should always be involved in a union because that's, as we have shown, uh, we are able to do uh, something and to change things if we are uh, united. Fantastic. That's a really great note to, um, to end on. Henry, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me and um, all the very best and uh, absolute solidarity with all, with all your ongoing struggles. No problem, mate. Thank All right. Very much. Take care. All right. Listen, good to talk to you, and um, I'll, uh, I'll hopefully see you soon. All right. All the best. Bye bye. bye. Uh, yeah, you've just heard an interview uh, that I did with Henry Lopez um, uh, about six weeks ago um, f uh, from the IWGB union, um, and we'll put up links to uh, their website so you can follow the progress of the dispute and read about how to support it uh, when we upload. The episode so that's about it for this month thanks for listening to this episode of labor days and um, this podcast was intended at least on some level as an intervention into debates rather than a mere reflection of them so if you came to this episode uh, with a pro open borders perspective uh, we hope we've reaffirmed you in that view and if you came in with the opposite view and are still listening then we hope uh, we've at least given you some uh, food for thought um, as i said if you want to support the work of any of the organisations that we've mentioned today, the IWGB, the Grunwick 40 Committee, um, or if you want to read the articles that we've mentioned or the historical documents that we've referred to, uh, we'll put up um, a comprehensive list of links when uh, the episode goes out. So thanks once again to our guests, Sujata and Henry. Um, join us again next month when we'll be discussing uh, industrial versus craft models of trade unionism and speaking to National Union of Teachers activist Jade Baker about the NUT's recent merger with the ATL to form the National Education Union. Uh, so that's all for this time. Good luck to everyone with your ongoing efforts in organising at work, um, fighting back against your boss, 
and particularly uh, in your canvassing and campaigning efforts in the general election. Um, hopefully by the time episode four of Labour Days goes out, um, we'll, have a, we'll have a Labour government. So. The polls are very much narrowing and everything we do on the ground makes a huge difference. So seriously, guys, see you on the Labour doorstep. Labour Days was presented by Ellie Clark, Ed Bostill and Daniel Randall. It was produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Our guests this month were Sajata Aurora from Brunwick 40 and Henry Lopez, President of the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain. Find us on Twitter at Labour underscore days and facebook.com forward slash Labour Days podcast. But we have to maintain the artifice that you haven't been here.